0: Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. You're listening to The Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. With your host, Nick Bat, The Prime Minister of Sweden visited Washington today, and my tiny little nipples went to France. And Bruce Nolan. Yo, brethren! What up with thee?
1: Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Nick Batt. You can find me on Twitter at N-I-C-K-B-A-T, and along with me, as always, is Bruce Nolan, although he is not with me currently, so he will not be introducing himself. You can find him on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. As many of you know, we are in the midst of our food tour of Western New York. We have brought Bruce up here to the motherland, a place where he has never lived, in order to take Bruce to all of the iconic food destinations and the iconic buffalo dishes so that we can try to turn him into an honorary Buffalonian. He's already got the Bills fandom, but he's never lived here and doesn't have the cuisine know-how that many of us treasure. So, one of the things that we were able to do this weekend was we were able to get beef on weck at Charlie the Butcher with Tim Graham from The Athletic. Now, this was not the first stop that we made, and it was not in our intention to release these out of order. However, Tim had some incredibly insightful and interesting perspectives, as well as a couple stories that we think Bills fans should know about and maybe haven't been spoken about much previously. So, we are going to go ahead and release this special edition of the Nick and Nolan Show with our conversation with Tim Tim Graham. We hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. Here's the show. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to the uh, Nick and Nolan show. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Nick Bat, along with uh, Bruce Nolan. And joining us today is an esteemed guest for some beef on WEC, Mr. Tim Graham. Thank you for joining us, Tim. Happy to do it. I, I know that this seems like a bit of
2: an okey-doke. From what I've uh, been told, that everybody just assumed we were going to Elmo's, but you can only do wings <laughs> so many times. So yeah. if you're going to be in Buffalo and you're going to do all the quintessential Buffalo spots, you have to do a Beef on Weck. So especially now I've, I've heard that, Bruce, this is
3: your first time. This is I'm staring right now at the first Beef on Weck that I will ever consume.
2: I'm glad that, that I'm thrilled that I suggested Charlie the Butcher.
1: <laughs> yes, well, we are too. So you you specifically made a comment whenever we reached out to you about this that you were curious as to why this isn't just a thing everywhere, because it is not. I'd like to see Bruce's opinion on this, but yeah, I, to me it makes so much sense. I mean, people eat pretzels
2: all around the world. People eat roast beef all around the world. Yep. Um, it, it's a roast beef sandwich on a pretzel-ish roll. I mean, it's just salt on top of the bun and I'm a, I'm a salt addict, number one. So obviously it appeals to me in that way, but I, to, well, we'll see what Bruce has to say about it. But yeah, I remember coming to Buffalo in 2000. I was uh, 29 years old, and I had my first beef on Weck. And I'm thinking, why? Why am I 29? And I'm having this for the first time. I yeah. should have had this when I was living out in Vegas or when I was growing up in Cleveland or something. I mean, like it just blew my mind.
1: So, are you from Cleveland originally?
2: I am. And you know, uh, as an aside, uh, I used to go to the original <laughs> Buffalo Wild Wings, which was then called. Uh, BW3s in Kent, Ohio. That's where the first one was. And it was Buffalo, wings and, uh, Buffalo Wild Wings and Weck, BW3. But it was shortened, and they got rid of the Weck. So even they tried to take it uh, out and about, and it failed, at least to a certain degree, at least in Kent, Ohio. But yeah. yeah.
3: I yep. have asked people multiple times why on earth people call Buffalo Wild Wings oh. BW3, and no one has given me that answer until right now. That's it. My mind has just blown. I've actually been in that
2: bar. When I I was, I took a semester at Kent, Uh, I went to Baldwin Wallace College, but both my brother and sister went to Kent and I lived 15 minutes from Kent growing up. You know, once I was hit adulthood and you start hitting, that's where you went for the bar scene, where I was from. And uh, yeah, BW3s was the joint. Wow. Now look at it. Yeah, really. I'm ready. All right. Let's, Let's do it. Ready. How much uh, horseradish are you going to put on? I don't like horseradish. Okay. don't. You don't have don't to. It's not, me. it's not, a, it... it's not, no. Okay, it's not necessary. so thank you. I feel better but now. But, I mean, then you might want to put, now we're already, for those listening, we're sitting out in uh, picnic tables outside of Charlie the Butcher, so we'd have to go back in if you wanted to get some mustard or something like that on it. I'm fine doing it dry I like here. Weber's mustard, which has horseradish in it. Okay. Well, have you had Weber's mustard and all that stuff? Have you gotten into the Buffalo condiments trip? See, on the no. Strip?
1: the thing is that we haven't gotten into a whole lot of the grocery staples. Okay. You know, so Sapio and Minio sausage, for example, or uh, Weber's Salin's mustard. Salin's hot dogs. Salem's hot dogs. We had them at Ted's, but yeah, the, the hot dogs themselves. Frank's hot sauce. Yeah. Which is pretty much any hot sauce is a Frank's base. Yeah. Chevetta's, uh, you know, chicken. Oh, yeah. There, I mean, there's some things that we have not hit that we're going to try to go for on the round two. but. I'm gonna go ahead and take a. There we go. Take a bite here. The
2: thing about Charlie the butcher too is we actually watch these guys carve, carve these meat, carve this meat right onto the sandwich.
1: Yeah, it's a bit of an experience. It's like they're putting on a show.
3: <laughs> I don't know why it's not a thing everywhere else, <laughs> but I guarantee you it
2: needs to be. Sure. And it, and it probably never will be. It would be by now.
3: Now here's my question. Because I recently, only recently, found out that Weck was short for Kimmelweck, which yeah. is the, the bread. Is is it is Kimmelweck bread specifically Buffalo regional stuff? Well, is that the it's, reason why? It's I'm not almost positive
1: else? it's uh, got a German background.
2: That's a good question. I don't know the background on that. It's also spelled with a U. That's another weird thing that I learned in my newspaper days. Because anytime you had to mention it in a Buffalo news story, it's not. It's people say Kimmelweck, mm-hmm. but it's K U M M Kimmelweck. But anyway, everything's been bastardized over the years. Maybe the reason why it's not everywhere
3: which is because they don't have the, you know, they don't have half the main ingredient, which is the bun just doesn't catch, didn't catch on regionally the way it's supposed to.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Yeah.
2: I mean, it could be a distribution thing. That's a good question. Who a, makes it? I don't, I don't know. know. Maybe there's somebody just regionally who makes it, like you say, and you can't get it in Los Angeles.
3: You're right. It's the salt. a
1: the Fantastic. pretzel salt and the caraway seed. It's that
3: pretzel salt and the caraway seed, and oh. the fact that it's it's so dense too. It's not you don't bite into it and think to yourself, "Well, that that was it." You know, some people they have this they have these meats and they they say things like, "It melts in your mouth," as if somehow that's supposed to be a good thing. Right. I don't want it to melt in my mouth, and it's gone. <laughs> that's right. I want to chew on it a little bit.
1: <laughs> uh, and then, uh, I, what I love on a good beef on weck is. They dip the bun in the au jus before they before they put the meat on it. So not only do you have the natural juiciness of the meat itself, but you've got some some juice that the bun absorbed before they even put it together. And, it, like, and yet it's not sloppy because that's a big thing for me
2: is texture. So. You get a great burger. A great burger for me is ruined by the fact that the bun falls apart when you try. Oh, yeah. it. I mean, I'll, I'll have the big thing where I have to put a hinge in my in my jaw to get my <laughs> mouth around it. But when the when the bun starts falling apart because they didn't uh, properly drain the grease from the burger or whatever it is, yeah, it's it's it turns into slop. Yeah. This is there is oju on this bun, and here we are. I'm almost done with mine, and nothing. It's the out the outer part of the bun is dry. Oh. I never thought that, I mean, I knew I was bringing you out, we're on a tour of
0: yeah. food,
2: uh, you know, we're, we're dining here, but I didn't think I would get into so much uh, food critique here. Hey, well, have you found anything that you didn't like? No. At this point. Or were disappointed by it? No, I mean, at this point, you can make an
3: argument right now that the least favorite thing I had was Leonardo's pizza. And that's not because I didn't like the pizza. It's just because pizza as a, as a genre is lower on my list than roast beef sandwiches and subs and wings. This is a little
1: unusual. So
3: even
2: the best pizza would still fall beneath a very good roast beef sandwich. What did you find about the concept of buffalo style pizza, which I've lived here, well, I, I lived in Florida for a couple of years, but I've lived here since 2000 and only until the last couple of years have people really been talking about the idea of buffalo style pizza. I think it's kind of like people realize that there are some really good pizza joints here and they started to brand it a little bit, but I don't remember for the first say ten years I lived in Buffalo, or maybe even fifteen, people talking about Buffalo style pizza. And now it's a thing. Oh, even it's a, the pizza, a thing. Even though the pizza hasn't changed, I think people no. just realized that. All right, we have. So, what do you do? You think it's? I
1: it's, think it's BS a little bit. I think it's the. To me, there's two things that are big on it. One is the crust, which is that it is it is neither thick nor thin, but it is spongy, and. It's just, it's just easy to get that particular texture wrong. I mean, and buffalo pizza too is very, is very elusive because places will, do, will get rave reviews for a pie for a time, and then a couple years later, everybody hates it. And they're like, ah, they, you know, something happened and it changed and they're not doing it the same way. But bocce pizza is supposedly the original buffalo pizza. And they, you use the cup and char pepperoni. That's the big deal too. The little the little pepperonis that are not like what you get from a chain pizza place they cup up and char the top rim whenever you bake them and then they get the little pool of grease as well so that you know you can't go without the can't go without the heartburn.
2: Have you guys had Picasso's pizza?
1: No, did not have Picasso's. I,
2: I I hesitate to give you one more thing to try, but whether you're doing an interview or not, that's that's been my favorite for a period of time. It's on transit in. Uh, well, I guess it's on the Amherst side. Yeah, not not too far from here, in fact, just maybe five, 10 minutes away from here.
1: Yeah. The other thing about Leonardis that I'm a particular fan of is just the, the, the way they slice with the, re- the long rectangles. So there's no like proper squares and there's not the triangle piece either. It's a square oblong rectangle pie and they cut the pieces into the rectangles as well. Square and that's pizza, a nostalgia thing Square pizza Square pizza
2: is a disappointment. Why is that? I mean, I've never had this discussion other than when I lift up a pizza box Usually, yeah. and sometimes it's some place I order, and they just decided they were going to cut it, or they, they were going to give it to you. And what is it about square pizza that is a downer? I think it's because inevitably you get up with those middle slices where you get no crust at all.
1: Well, that's true.
3: And so that's always and disappointing. Those, if and they'll talking, fall apart. And also. you're Sorry. If
1: you're talking about a messy food that falls apart on you, that's true. The middle, the middle piece of a square pizza with no crust—that is a disaster waiting to happen. When God created pizza, He gave us handles on the end of the pizza
3: for our use. And then we spit in the face of God. There's a lot of things, like this little stands that are on the
2: uh, bottoms of each apple Mm -hmm. that he put, you know, little, you know, this little stands to make it. uh, There's all kinds of things that God did. And you're right. It's an, yeah, it's an affront to the Lord.
1: Yeah, tomorrow. It's sacrilegious. Speaking of the Lord, tomorrow, for all the listeners out there and for you, Tim, we could personally use your prayers because on the Lord's day, we're going to have a garbage plate and then be stuck in a car together for about three and a half hours. I've never had a garbage plate and I've
2: never even I'm a curious person (laughs) by general. Like I I think that's what has kind of driven me as a reporter is I, I think I'm a naturally curious person. I remember even in my teens thinking to myself, I want to experience everything there is to experience on this planet. And that would include like well, this is a family podcast. Like If I could try heroin and get away with it, I'd like to do that. Yeah. You know, and I've had injuries before. I have back issues. I've actually had opiates, so I can see where, I can see the charm in that. I can understand why people enjoy it. If I could get away with, you know, uh, trying cocaine for, you know, a month, you know, without repercussions. Absolutely. Let's do it. I want to at least after, after I'm done say, yeah. I did it all. I did it. And I can maybe explain to people what it was like. I have never once thought to myself I need to change and I'm actually on a certain level we're all gonna die and it's part of the uh, one regret that I have and I'm saying this seriously I'm not saying this for for out, out of sarcasm or for effect I would love to be able to experience death but then be able to like explain it like the, yeah. the, the thing mm-hmm. about death is you're gonna die and but you don't get to tell anybody about it right, right? right. it's like you're, you're stuck alone with this experience. But it's gonna. I'm gonna experience it at some point, and I hope I'm at a place in life where I'm just like, oh, okay, well, this is what this is all about. But I've never. Wa- I'm looking forward to death more than I'm looking forward to having a garbage plate.
3: That's and a I, strong, strong statement. I, I have had, had right zero, there.
1: zero interest in yeah. trying a garbage plate. I, I think that really it's an attest to your good mental health, <laughs> 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 as much as anything else. Now, uh, Bruce, you've never
2: had one. I've never had
1: one. I've you've never had. had I've, oh, you've no, never had one. No, either. no. This, I mean. So Well, maybe that goes,
2: we've been this close. I mean, you guys travel around. You've been, you've had, could have had a garbage plate at some point in your life. Yeah. And you've never, maybe that's a a sign in and of itself. Yeah. That three people who
1: are willing to try new things have never had a garbage plate. And obviously appreciate, you know, the the Buffalo staple, the Western New York staple cuisine, right? I mean, you, you, with training camp, let alone just your normal travels, I'm sure I've spent many nights in Rochester and many mornings and uh, never made it a point. So And they'll get it you'll see it on a menu here in Buffalo. As we're you're getting one in Buffalo tomorrow. Yep. So you you I've had the ability to have it,
2: you know, yeah. but no, give me especially, you know, like when you're supposed to eat it, right? It's two in the morning. Well I should say four fifteen in the morning. Yeah, probably that. Um right,
1: right after you have a stinger from Jim's. Give
2: me some pancakes or bacon and eggs or you know, I don't need I think it's Rochester really pushes this as its thing, I think, because it doesn't have a thing. Right. And so it's overrated number one yeah and yeah I just I don't get it yeah well I I don't know that we're gonna get it but we are gonna try to get it I hope (laughs) I'm not planting the seed though so now you be open-minded about it don't go there and say you know
1: what everybody was right this does suck it's individual. because there's a reason that it's still around some people must like it the individual component parts of a garbage plate right so it's a a potato of some kind uh, a meat of some kind like hot dogs or uh, burgers or whatever those things I can. Or hot I, sauce. On the, yeah. That? Well, then there's the the chili, like the, the Texas the Texas sauce they say, right. which is you know I would imagine some some reference to a coney sauce, a thin you know maybe chili. I, I, all of these individual component parts I can abide by. Yeah. It's um, you know, it's the mixing of them in one forkful that questions questions my preferences.
2: What I think of when I hear about all the ingredients is a taco salad or something along those lines where it's just a mishmash. So uh, so I'll go to Taco Bell and get a taco
1: salad. Yeah. If I want that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you did, but they're different ingredients. Taco salad with hot dogs, a yeah, different story. Um, yeah, well, that's what I'm saying is I,
2: why would I, why would I go for that when I could have a taco salad? Yeah. I, is what I, I mean, I guess. And taco salads aren't something that I ever crave.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, somebody came up with it and it worked. It's about the uh, the fame and the recognition that it gets and the references mystique. that it gets. Yeah, that we have to we have to go pay homage garbage to garbage plate mystique. <laughs> we have to go pay homage to the garbage plate gods and ask them to bless our journey home.
3: And hopefully, we won't pay, have to pay homage to other sorts of gods like porcelain ones yeah. <laughs> before we get
1: home. <laughs> That's probably true. So, can we uh, can we talk about some of your your career and Bill's stuff? Sure. While we have you absolutely. Brain? Hey, by the way, you guys are going back to Cleveland. Quaker mm-hmm. Steak and Lube. You yeah. ever done that? Yeah, yeah,
2: oh, yeah. yeah. there's one not, couple, from, not far from my house. So there's one in Erie, of course. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've been to the original of that. In fact, my brother took me Sharon there for- Sharon, Pennsylvania? Yeah, took yeah. me there
1: for my 21st birthday. It was I, not pleasant. I've been to that one. I've been to the Sharon, Pennsylvania one. I grew up a little bit north of Pittsburgh a town called Beaver Falls. So I was there until I went to college and went to the Sharon, Pennsylvania one a couple of times. I think I'm legally obligated. I probably signed a paper at some point that when you say Beaver Falls, I'm supposed to say the home of Joe Namath. Yeah, you are. Everybody has to say that, right? They do, and there are tributes to him in many places around town. So rightfully so, he's the most famous person to come out of there. Nice man. His uh, his brother lived down the road from me when I was uh, growing up, and nice nice family. So, are there still Namaths there? You know not of my generation that i at least interacted with but doesn't mean that they are not they just may have gone to one of the other area school districts or lived in the town across the way or whatnot yeah, you
2: think about it such an unusual name that
1: with such recognition
2: that you don't ever run into somebody else named Namath, or you know usually by you get to a certain age you've heard all the names right but there's how many name i mean i don't know any name is i mean there's also some great names in sports that yeah yeah Anyways,
1: I de- I, I
2: uh, derailed you.
1: I uh, I wanted to specifically ask about some of your some of your years covering the Dolphins, and right. well, only one season. Oh, really? It was a crazy season. It was
2: the one in fifteen season. With and Cam Cameron. Uh, yeah, Cam Cameron's lone season as head coach, and um, but then I got hired by ESPN and covered the AFC East. So I guess oh, technically did I a did whole. cover okay. the Dolphins for another three years after that.
1: Okay. Okay and uh, I'll cut this if it's not something that you're willing to talk about, but no. I'm curious about the uh, the, per- the media personality that has so much, the only media personality from Miami I think that gets such attention, which would be a Mr. Omar Kelly. Yeah.
2: No, I'll <laughs> talk about it. I mean, he's, uh, he's abrasive and he's a
1: troll. I think it's a brand that served him well. Uh, I wouldn't know who he was if he wasn't, you know, A pain in our ass so to speak
2: yeah he's uh, yeah he the way that he insult, he goes out of his way to insult people he was gleefully talking about how the Bills were gonna lose their team you know enjoy your team I remember uh, just
1: making fun of that's uh, that's when he first came to my attention
2: yeah that those types of things and uh, I think he believes it I don't know I mean I I, Omar and I were on speaking terms for the first bit of bit of time that I was uh, down there covering the Dolphins but then I, I quickly learned that this guy was no, no type of journalist that I could respect. So yeah. that's you know he has me blocked on Twitter. Um, you know he's we've gotten into it a couple of times where I'm just like, what's your point? What are you trying to do here? Why why are you trying to antagonize? Are you just trying to play a role? Is this like pro wrestling? And um, and I just uh, I, yeah I just don't have a lot of respect for him.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, that scratches an itch that. But- has been there for me for some years.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people, a lot of, and it, I, I, I hesitate to speak for all reporters uh, in South Florida, but I would think that my opinion on him is the majority uh, among other reporters there. Now there are some people who get along with him and say, "Ah, he's harmless, he's a good guy," um, but I just never, I yep. never understood it.
3: Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle.
1: the experience, whenever Omar Kelly came on our radar, was because he was poking fun at the fact that the team was for sale and that we were going to lose our franchise, right?
2: Right. And Well, that's the long-held belief that Bills fans had, and I think justifiably was that, and we're talking about generations of fans, not just fans our age or younger or, you know, any. You're talking about fans in their 80s. Uh, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion that when Ralph Wilson dies, we're going to lose our team. Yeah. And that nothing had really been uh, done or said to allay those concerns. And so when Ralph died, it was like, oh my God. And the thing, too, that was really unhealthy about that dynamic is that I think that there were a lot of Bills fans, especially from the early 2000s on, you know, maybe even the late 90s, as Ralph is old. I mean, Ralph was old for a long time. Um, thankfully. I mean, thankfully, he got to live such a long life. Um, but is, I think that there were a lot of fans who couldn't put both feet in on the Bills, that they couldn't quite get excited, whether it came to buying season tickets or just embracing the team, because I think that a lot of it was a defense mechanism where this team's going to be gone and it's going to break my heart someday anyway. So everybody just was kind of at an arm's length, I'm watching the team, but I am not. I can't really embrace it. And then once the Pagoulas, came, and I know I'm jumping ahead here, but once the Pagulas came in, I think that that relief of not only do we get to keep our team, we don't have to worry about this anymore, really allowed Bills fans to go all in with their fandom and not have to worry about getting their hearts broken.
1: Yeah. What was it like for you? Because you were one of the primary, at least, you know, tw- I think in general, media people in general, but certainly on twitter i was refreshing your feed nightly i yeah. mean like for i would sit there for you know hour and a half every evening just kind of waiting for you to break news about what was happening with the ownership process and the bids and all of that stuff what was that experience like on your end of it i enjoyed it it was stressful
2: but i knew that it was I'm, i don't think i'm being hyperbolic on this and something will come along to knock it out of the box at some point but Maybe the most important story, clearly the most important story in Western New York sports history. Yeah. Because even the Bills getting a team wasn't as big as the fact that they might lose it. It was the AFL at the time. The NFL wasn't nearly what it, what it is now in the 1960s. Um, it was considered a bit of a minor league that kind of eased its way up towards the NFL. It, 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 it ramped itself up uh whereas it wasn't this sudden it wouldn't be like jacksonville getting its uh its uh, expansion franchise or the carolina panthers this was different and so to have the rug yanked out from underneath you i I thought I, i had treated it as the most important story that i'll ever cover and i think you could say one of the most important stories period in western new york history like how many things were bigger than that would be bigger than this i mean mckinley being assassinated of course you're not going to touch that but i mean bethlehem steel closing um I, I don't know but the the bethlehem steel as important as it was isn't a part of the fabric like the bills are it doesn't it touch the bills touch everybody as a source of pride the people obviously who worked at bethlehem steel and there were ripple effects in the economy that people didn't re- that probably took for granted but when the bills are gone, the bills are gone. And that's, that's a big thing. So yeah, it was a lot of stress. My major stress on it was, I thought I did very well on the coverage in terms of having it blanketed, covering all of the different uh, interested parties. Uh, I was very well sourced uh, within all of the different uh, groups. I was even talking with Donald Trump and his team on a fairly regular basis, which in retrospect is quite surreal. Um, I was the one, we can get back into it in a little bit. I was the one who told Donald Trump <clears throat> that the bills were for sale. Oh, really? Yes. And uh, it's a funny conversation. But uh, my main stress was that at some point at the very end, I will have covered this thing wall, almost wall to wall. And that an Adam Schefter or a Chris Mortensen or an Ian Rappaport at the last second was going to come in. and Because nobody was paying attention to it nobody cared too much about Bill's ownership. They would rather report to you about who who would it have been at the time, um, EJ Manuel. I mean, that was, because it doesn't, who's gonna be the next owner of the Bills doesn't move a needle in terms of clicks at NFL.com or ESPN.com, but maybe the final stroke, then somebody comes in and it gets handed to them. And so that was the one thing, and I was, that was, I was never more proud, I think, as, uh, at least in the moment, to be able to tweet congratulations, Bills fans. And that was, I know it made a lot of people emotional, and that was something that I uh, i took a lot of joy in being able to be the guy that to deliver the news that the Pagoulas are buying the Bills.
1: Yeah. What is it like writing for a fan base? Maybe you can correct me on this if the assumption is wrong behind the question in the first place. What is it like writing for fans that have so much I don't know bills mafia quote-unquote hashtag bills mafia has a reputation of being incredibly emotionally invested you know tenacious when, when consuming content of large quantities more so than some other fan bases miami i think the dolphins have a little bit of the opposite reputation of that right what's that what's the experience from your end of things doing both i think that the bills being more voracious
2: than anybody else is a bit overdone i think that there are other fan bases that are right up there with them um cleveland i think to a degree uh maybe you know obviously they were desensitized by so much losing over the time i mean and it was and being from cleveland myself that's that synopsis from when art modell moved the team until they got the it was an expansion team and you have an expansion draft and so you lose a few years of the team number 1 and then they come back and it's a bunch of guys you don't know. So you don't have you didn't you didn't follow them on draft day. You know, you didn't know you don't know all their backstories like you did. You know, there was no continuity. And so, and then they sucked. And so there was, you know, there's a lot of Browns fans that I think went dormant because and, and the
1: Ravens had so much yeah, success. Right, exactly. The foundation of their organization went in did what they did in Baltimore, but I
2: think I don't think that Bills fans ever impressed me as being any more hardcore than the Browns fans that I knew when I was growing up. Or um, different, obviously, the dynamic with the Patriots, uh, Jets fans. I think are, are rabid. I mean, there are there are a lot of rabid fan bases. So yes, they are unique in their own way. They do have their own uh, you know nuances to their personality. But you are right. I I was stunned at the lack of passion in south florida for the dolphins as great as the dolphins had been super bowl years undefeated team the whole thing um uh, the year that they went from 1-15 to 11-5 and uh, that was a fan base that was one foot in like i was talking about earlier with the bills they because the patriots were breathing down their neck and it was a tiebreaker situation and just one loss a- at the wrong time and the, and the dolphins aren't making the playoffs but they, it was wasn't as though the Dolphins fans were enjoying it. It was like if they don't make the playoffs, then it didn't it, like it. What it didn't matter at all. It, if this was a one fifteen to eleven five, or let's say they went ten six. I mean, this is miraculous. Chad Pennington came in second to Peyton Manning that year for MVP. I mean, there was that was the wildcat. There was so much fun on that team. Craziness. You know, Bill Parcells is a part of it. Tony Sperano was a bit of a non-entity. He's, he had no cachet, but uh, there was a lot of cool stuff going on with that team. Ricky Williams was reborn. Ronnie Brown's having fun. Uh, so, um, But this, the games weren't even close to sold out until uh, I think it might've been the last game of the season when it looked like they were going to the playoffs. And then they get a home game because they won the division and the place was not full for that either. And I just think, you know, listening to sports radio, I don't listen to sports radio anymore, but as a beat writer at the time, I felt it was my obligation to stay on top of everything. And they had three all-sports stations down there, and I'm flipping back and forth. And they'd just as soon talk about the heat or talk about, I mean, not the Panthers, of course, but they, there was a lot of Marlins talk at the time. Uh, you'd hear M- Miami Hurricanes. Now, I care, you know, so it, it's a bit diluted. If you're a fan down there you could be distracted quite a bit by all the different things that are going on and then of course there's the the cliche of well there's just too much to do down here you know we can go to the beach if we want to well i guess that's true but um yeah i was i will say that that is uh, that is dead on accurate i've never seen a more laid-back um uninterested or dispassionate fan base than Miami.
1: Is it motivating for you when you get all of the positive feedback that you do from the fan base? And then consequently, when you're in a place like Miami, is that motivation a little absent because you're not getting that same feedback loop?
2: Yeah, you're getting, uh, you wonder who's reading. You know, I go back to the time when I was covering the Sabres and I knew that everybody, uh, my last two years on the Sabres beat were, well, my last game was Drury and Breer's last game. So, you know, I, I, I covered them through that that whole time. Why'd I covered him for seven <laughs> years. Uh, was it because of
1: you that everything went the way? Oh, around? I'm sure. Yeah,
2: they were like, well, Tim's leaving to go cover the Dolphins. I'm not going to resign with the Sabres. Um, but it was, uh, I knew that the readers were hanging on every word. Right. And that was, yeah, that was a get you up in the morning. You know, yeah. to know that you have to give them something different, something uh, something to, you know, that, and you know it's a super educated fan base too. Like, I, you can't fake it. So I can't just, uh, you know, throw something against the wall, and, and I, I mean, I, I was going to get some criticism. I, my email, you don't get emails anymore because of Twitter—but when I was at the covering the the Sabers for the news, I would get seven, eight emails a day, which is a lot. And uh, I knew that you know I would have fans upset with me, or like so. I knew, yeah, I was I knew who my audience was. But yeah, you're down there hollering into the void in South Florida. You don't know who your who your audience is. So now you have a big audience. You're at the Athletic, yeah. and the Athletic
3: has been gobbling up unbelievable talent for the last 12 to 18 months, and really making a national stamp on this. What's it like working with the Athletic now?
2: It's exciting, and I mean, I you know I I don't want to get into a situation where I'm comparing the Buffalo News to the Athletic, but a year and year plus ago when we lost all that talent and. Uh, And even if you didn't think that Jerry Sullivan was any good or you were tired of Bucky Gleason or whatever it is, the years of institutional knowledge that the Buffalo News lost, I added it up recently and it was 100, I think it was 159 years. And that's just working at the Buffalo News. That's not the time that I worked for ESPN or in Las Vegas or the time that Jerry Sullivan was covering the NBA for Newsday or Bucky Gleason was in Philadelphia or John Vogel was in Georgia. or these. This was just at the Buffalo News. Uh, Bob De Cesari, uh Keith McShea uh, is no longer in sports. Uh, he was the interim sports editor, longtime assistant editor, and of course, what he did with high school sports in western New York uh, will never be matched. Uh, to lose all of that, 159 years, I mean, it was, I've said this before, and again, I'm not, uh, I was depressed and not in a way like, man, that this sucks. It was, I went to my doctor, and I was like, I'm having trouble sleeping. I mean, this was a place I thought I was going to retire from. Now, all of a sudden, we're talking about losing money. Uh, We're gutting uh, the sport. All right, I'll take a step back. The sports department was supposed to have no changes aside from Keith McShay being transferred to a different department. All those buyouts were voluntary. So John Vogel takes the buyout. And then Bucky Gleason takes the buyout and then Jerry Sullivan takes it. At some point management was allowed to say, we're going to turn down your request for this buyout for stability purposes. And they didn't, they just kept saying, they just kept saying, approved, approved, approved. And, um, and I wake up one day and because of my versatility, having covered the Sabres, having covered college sports, uh, at that time, it was the, the the draft that was coming up for the Saber, the NHL draft where Darlene was going to be taken first. Uh, there was a story that they wanted me to do in Erie uh, because Vlad Guerrero was coming through uh, in the double-A and everybody knew he was about to be with the Bisons, so we want you to go. So I was doing four sports at the same. And it's like, hey, Tim, you're gonna, sorry, man. It's. Eh. I'm like, what? all these guys <laughs> are gone. I mean, these are my friends. I'm closer to some of these people than I am my own brother and sister. And, uh, yeah, I went and I talked to my doctor about it. I, I was... And so the athletic, there are no guarantees at the athletic. We don't know what's going to happen. This is still an experiment in some regards. It's been successful so far and it looks great, but we don't know. I mean, I'm not on I'm under no guaranteed contract. But it came down to me as a decision of do I want to be do I want to be a part of something that's growing and exciting with some uncertainty or do I want to be a part of something that's old and dying with uncertainty? And that's what it came down to for me. And mm-hmm. so I went there and I think that there's a lot of people who work for The Athletic that feel the same way about it. Uh, there's a camaraderie to that mentality as opposed to the depression that I was experiencing. And I'm sure a lot of people at One News Plaza are still experiencing. Um, and yeah, so I have, I have teammates that, and where it's kind of like a all-in mentality of let's let's make this thing work. And yeah, you should probably have that at the Buffalo News, too. But it's hard to get to that place when you disagree with so much that management has done to say it's a very human response to say, Oh, you want me to everybody to band together and pull together? Well, what what are you guys doing? Or why, why then why did you do this, this and this as opposed to being a part of something new? And they just say, All right, guys, let's go. And we we're under no edict to make it work. We just naturally want to do it because. They're trusting us to do this stuff, and um, it's, it's been incredibly refreshing. It's hard to have a great team without a great leadership, and um, yeah. I get it. I, it. And the thing is, is I respect a lot of the individual leaders there at the Buffalo News. Um, these are people who gave me the freedom and budget to do what the work that I did there for a long time, work that I'm proud of, work that I know they were proud of, it's the the business part of it it's not the journalism part of it it's the business part of it and of course the athletic has a business aspect to it also but um the business decisions when when the business decisions eclipse the journalism decisions it becomes it becomes difficult to then want to fight you know band together as journalists to go all right well let's what do we have to do we have to not only overcome the economic aspects of it. Now we have to overcome our own people or at least our own get over it, you know, in, ter- in a, in a mental for our own spirit, you know, just to get excited about coming to work every day. It was, it was a tough task.
1: What's your take on paywalls as a, as a function of how journalism is trying to stabilize the business portion of things? It seems to be working at the athletic. Now
2: I'll, I'm, I'm not so on top of it that I can tell you And and I should be. I mean, I teach sports journalism at Canisius College, and so I I think i probably read about it and think about it a little more philosophically than than most. But I I think it's still a bit of an unknown, but it seems to be working at The Athletic. I'll tell you this, from a personal standpoint, if I'm going to subscribe to a publication online, then I should not be forced to deal with all the ads that are on the site. It's not a double dip. the, The newspapers are trying to get a double dip. The thing that's great about The Athletic and where we get most of our positive feedback on the app and on our, is how clean our website is, how clean our app is. And it's okay, yeah, we're gonna make you pay two, three bucks a month. Um, Same as the local paper or the local, you know, national magazine, but then you don't have to deal with all the other stuff. I mean, it should be an either or, but I know the newspapers can't, I mean, they need all the help they can get the other thing that I think is pretty cool about the Athletic, yeah, it's a paywall, but it would be tantamount to saying, "All right, I'm going to subscribe to." Don't want to keep using the Buffalo News as, as a as an example. Let's say the Cleveland Plain Dealer. I subscribe to the Cleveland Plain Dealer sports page, but I get the New York Times sports page, the Buffalo News sports page, the Cincinnati Enquirer sports page, the LA Times sports page. That's what, at the Athletic. You don't just get the Bills; you get everything in all sports. So if you're a Yankees fan. You then don't you're not going to get your yankees coverage out of the buffalo news but you can get your bills coverage your sabers coverage and oh by the way the yankees and whatever your hockey team is whatever your nba team is you get all of it so that's where i think it's a it's a it's a concept that works but at, when you when you m- go to a little micro uh, mm-hmm. element to the newspaper maybe it does maybe I, it doesn't seem to be working uh, ex- with the exception of a few places the fi-
1: yeah i mean the thing is i think that makes sense with that it it, it could have always been this way but i think that perhaps with the onset of social media and whatnot fans can be a lot more cosmopolitan with who they follow nowadays you know as far as it, it is not necessarily only your local team that you're a fan of with the way that sports is distributed and and how ubiquitous some of the good teams are you can get people from across the country who their favorite team is not their local team it's this other team and yeah the athletic I think what you just described plays into people being able to do that. You have a lot of baseball and basketball fans in this town yeah. who are
2: underserved by the local paper, and that's not the paper's fault. I mean, yeah, they can post the box scores and the standings every day, but you're not going to get a, a feature on the the Mets center fielder or you know uh, the Yankees bullpen. Yeah, I mean, you want that stuff. I mean, what my the three things that I have bookmarked on the Athletic are Bills, Sabers, Cleveland Indians. And so I glug on there and I get all my stuff. And it's uh, I I think it's great that way. And it's one of those deals where it seems to be working. I don't know the numbers. The Athletic is very secretive about its numbers. Uh, We do get a sense uh, based on we do get uh, analytics that tell us the percentage of readers who are looking at your stories and then you can kind of um, reverse engineer. but uh, it, it seems to be working well. I was told that we were profitable within just a, a couple of months of us launching in Buffalo, and, um, and we've grown considerably since then. Well, anecdotally, I know lots of people who
3: wouldn't have ever paid for anything else that are paying for The Athletic. I understand it's just anecdotally, but part of that is, like you said, you get, you get national width with local
2: depth. And that's,
3: yeah. uh, that's a that's a really, that's a great way really... to put it.
2: I hadn't really thought of it in that regard, but I'm going to steal that and I'm going to be saying that. Uh, but you're right. That's exactly what it is, and it's it's local depth with every team. So it's not just like, oh, by the way, uh, we're gonna ch- we're gonna concentrate on Buffalo or Chicago or these. It's no, we have beat writers, and in many cases, two or three beat writers on every major league team. Of the big four, we're adding, we already have colleges, got, we have college people, we're adding that. Um, there's going to be an expansion to Europe for soccer and things like that. Mm. I don't know, wow. we're going to, it's, uh, yeah, we're growing. I have a question about you. Ha- I hope it
1: continues to work. I'm not saying <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I, I mean, again, I don't know, but I yeah, hope. Yeah. yeah, you have written some incredible long form pieces. Daryl Talley, you know, most recently Lex Luger, previously you did the O.J. Simpson piece that came out here mm-hmm. recently. Those are, situ- those are stories, I think, where sometimes you are probably coming across information that maybe didn't make it into the story because for one reason or another, it was unflattering, sensitive, etc., one of the things I heard you say one time, um, well, here... the unflattering stuff is generally the stuff that absolutely gets it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I don't know if I perhaps missed what I'm about to reference. That was actually publicized in a story. But I remember hearing you say one time about E.J. Manuel while he was here that he had a sports therapist on speed dial, and that was not me. Oh no, I don't. That doesn't ring a bell. Oh, okay. I think no. I don't. That wasn't me. Okay. I thought that it was you uh, on a time that you were speaking with Matt Fairburn and Joe Biscaglia. Oh, jeez. I
2: mean, clearly, I mean, if I were saying it, maybe was I was it saying it as a, as a, as as uh, it, I think uh, it might have, have been be...
1: hyperbole. And yeah, I right.
2: might have been making a joke. Okay, well, then we'll just, maybe we'll just, maybe not we'll some, just cut this. Maybe we'll not could... something you joke about.
1: Well, what's the, maybe it'll jog, I mean, keep, we'll keep so talking. So my question on that was, you know, at the time he was years removed from us uh, as far as our fan base. And not that the interest level for previous players dissipates entirely, but he's not our current guy. It's not going to impact fan opinion about whether or not the bill should keep him or whatever. Right. And I don't know whether that was or was not true because again, our, we're talking that it may have been hyperbole yeah. or a bit, of, a bit of a joke,
2: but I mean, this is wouldn't be the first time I've forgotten. I, I read a story once It was during Jim when Jim Kelly was I'm not laughing that he was sick, but when he first was diagnosed with cancer and then two, three years later, he went back and um, the Buffalo News retweeted, if you're curious about what, and it was my, the story was very clinical about this is what this cancer is, it's right. the recurrence, and it was whatever. Interviewed a couple of doctors, and it was, here's Tim Graham's story from whatever. And I read it, and I said, I didn't write this. And Keith McShay was the one who retweeted, it, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I like your name's on it. And I was like, no, nah, I yeah. So then I, searched in my laptop and I had written it and I was reading it and I didn't recognize it. So I was like,
1: Oh shit, I guess I did write that.
2: Okay. Well, you know, but I don't recall that as a, as a bit of news that I have uncovered.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing was, is I thought that you, my impression of the conversation at the time, and this could just leave to my, the question itself still will stand, even if the details around what I'm coming up, what I'm coming up with aren't exactly accurate. But my impression of it was that was information that may have been somewhat common knowledge to guys who have access because of, you know, you you guys are in the locker room, you you hear things off the record from teammates, I'm sure, and all sorts of things like that. You get maybe a better, more accurate sense of what things are really like for some of the players. What Russ Brandon's up to, yeah. Yeah. And I think that I got the impression that that was something that maybe you knew or perhaps was common knowledge, but you sat on it and you dropped it in that conversation because it was years after the fact and the opportunity for it to really impact a fan's opinion of their potential starting quarterback or a player on their team the time had passed right. and that it was safer to do that then. And I'm curious if whether or not that specific situation took place the way I just described it, do you run in that do you run into that kind of stuff? Whenever you have the access to these people who are humans, right? I mean, they—they're right. they're individuals with their own struggles and whatnot that really can have very little to do with the on-the-field product or the sport.
2: My my answer to that is yes, but I'm actually having trouble coming up with a good example because I think over the years, and I have found myself actually thinking this is exactly what you're saying. If you come across something that might be considered delicate information or maybe it really does not affect whether the person's doing their job, that's something that had always come up about Russ Brandon among sports writers and all the things that we had heard um, was, if this, is this affecting his job? Yeah. Like, does this impact the Buffalo Bills? Are you guys really calling him on your radio show? Is that, no, or is that an old no, sound soundbite? No. That's from when he worked, from yeah, the yeah. day that he worked at New Era. The, yeah, yeah, at. yeah. Because so,
1: uh, you did that recently. Yeah. And you said one of these days he's going to answer. And I'm like, it no, has that, to be that, a running that, joke. That, that, it is,
2: it is. Okay, okay. Yeah, I
1: have, hey, Bobby, see if you can get uh, Russ <laughs> so, or, so he just uh, plays uh, the soundbite. Yeah, yes. okay, okay,
2: exactly. okay. Um, and so it's like, all right, whatever he's doing in his personal life is his personal life. But until it starts impacting what's happening with the Bills and then he got fired for it. And so, yeah, I mean, then it became a story. Um, you know, the names have been withheld, uh, but that's why he got fired uh, from the Buffalo Bills. And, um, but I have found myself, oh, I, I will actually ask myself the question, is this something that would be newsworthy? two years after this player's gone and if it is and I feel obligated then I should be writing about it now um, but coming up with
1: an example is tough right now because um... you always think about like if you think about politics for example and then maybe this will be a nice way to get back into your incredibly juicy Donald Trump story that oh. i I'm, ex- I'm anxious to hear yeah. but you know politics we hear what we hear at the time and then years later, people who knew more will write tell-all books. Right, and there are sometimes some very interesting revelations at that point. But it's years after the fact. The opportunity for the do for it to do whatever kind, make whatever kind of influence or changes that it would have made at the time. That time is come and gone. But the information is still something that people are fascinated by, and readers or watchers or whatever will will you know chase with their teeth and their claws out you know what i mean just just to consume as much as possible and i imagine that fans can be so awestruck and interested in the personalities and the the players who are on their teams that sometimes that information after the fact could still be something that i would imagine would drive traffic up readers you know stuff like that get clicks whatever the metrics are that that drive journalism there are things that can backfire you know or at
2: least uh that you're (laughs) people who are a fan a fan favorite. I mean, I could think of, uh, I'm going to just use this as a hypothetical. Um, when Trent Edwards was hot here in Western New York and people were talking about this guy's going to the pro bowl and we're heading back to the playoffs. You couldn't say anything bad about him. Oh, uh, let me, let me step back. I don't even have to use a hypothetical. When I was covering the Sabres, uh, There was the hit that Chris Neal gave to Chris Drury. Mm. Gave him a a concussion um, and uh, lack of penalty or punishment. Uh, Larry Quinn and Tom Galisano took out a full-page ad in uh, USA Today to blast the NHL, essentially. (laughs) Well, I remember uh, Bruce Garriott, the writer in Ottawa, had said that they were whining, you know, that this is... And it was. It was whining. I just remember everybody going, apeshit. About Bruce Garriock, and it was he turned into memes, and they were making fun of his weight and giving these pictures of him and putting things in his mouth and all this other stuff on all these message boards. And I'm like, he all he said was that Galisano was whining, which he kind of was. And it's like, oh, uh, no way. And it was people standing up for because Galisano was still the white knight at that time, and the Sabres were going great. You could not say anything bad about Tom Galisano. Well, flash forward a year and a half and you could not say anything good about Tom Galliano the same fan base had turned on him and so yeah and i think that that's where people like Jerry Sullivan and Bucky Gleason take a lot a lot of heat is because you're not allowed to be critical of things until we're fed up with them and <laughs> I think that's probably very, very, astute. That's very astute and <laughs> part and part of their role is to maybe tell you when you should be fed up with something yeah and so no no we're still excited about Rex Ryan Stop telling us why Rex Ryan is a joke. We like this is still fun. We're, we're enjoying this, or whomever, whatever quarterback or player you want to throw in there. And so, I think you do find times where, as a writer, a, non, a non-columnist, where you may encounter some information and say, "Is it worth it for me?" All right, it's it's not it's not it doesn't meet the standard of being newsworthy. If I were to mention this one sentence, what's it going to do other than it's going to be a hassle for me? So maybe I don't write it and not because it's, but obviously if it reaches a certain threshold, the tough, tough shit. is it net positive? Yes. But that's only in minor circumstances, you know? Um, But yeah, if something's newsworthy enough, I have to do my my job and put it out there. But yeah, if there's something where it's like, all right, I could totally make, oh, well, good example. Okay, here we go. Uh, so I'm about to say something that hasn't been uh, said too much, and it's something that maybe it should have been done. Maybe we should. Maybe this is a regret. Richie Incognito is a member of the Buffalo Bills and a very uh, popular member of the Buffalo Bills. Indeed. Uh, at the time, especially, uh, people—if I were to say these things that I'm about to say—would probably be, uh, you know, what would be the, uh, what would be, would there be to gain uh, for me to have said these things? This is a guy who really believed that he didn't do anything wrong with Jonathan Martin. I, in his mind, I I can get to a place where I can kind of agree with it. In in Richie Incognito's mind, his role is of, everything's like a a roast, like you see on on Comedy Central or whatever. And so it's like no holds barred. But, so even after everything that happened, with the Dolphins and the Jonathan Martin and the NFL investigation, everything—the things that he would say in the locker room—reporters, we would just look at each other like, "Does, does this guy not learn?" Right. Like the pro- different profanities, calling people, you know, using homophobic uh, language or this that. You know, it was just be like. But he, he didn't. And I, would that have been a newsworthy story to say this is what Richie Incognito is saying? With he believes in the sanctity of his locker room. And had we, anybody written that story at the time, it would have been STFU, leave him alone. He's like, like whatever, it would have been, so, oh, you're just a social justice warrior, or whatever. But now I mention this now, and people, are, there are probably some people who are gonna listen and say, well, why wasn't that reported at the time? Because now he's not on the team right and now he's run into other troubles and people are done with him and he quit on the bills and he wanted to renege on a contract extension that he redid and so yeah it's basically the fan uh the fans appetite decides whether or not you're doing a good job as a journalist
3: fans take ownership of this player and he as long as he's our guy you can't say anything about him right once we let him go then then you can say what now he's now he's you know fair that's right
1: yeah interesting you mentioned Rex Ryan. I'm going to save the Trump thing for last because it's a great closer. So <laughs> sure. Well, we'll see. Maybe I'll disappoint you. Yeah. <laughs> the. When Rex Ryan was here, you know, the the comments that have been that were made at the time, people like Bucky and Jerry and even since, you know, recently I, we are both big fans of uh, the Bills beat with Matt and Joe mm-hmm. and Matt made the comment that like, There was the the likelihood or the possibility of creating a relationship with this guy so that you could understand him was absolutely nil. Yeah. Because he was, you know, a phony from day one, essentially. Not so interested in the wrecks with this question, but with all the experience that you have had with the Dolphins, with the Bills prior, the Bills now, all of the regime changes there's a certain level of goodwill that it seems Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean have amongst the fan base because they ended the drought, but also just with their decision-making around roster building, around the way they handle players, around the culture, quote unquote, that they're building and the process. Is that, is there anything to that from your perspective with their? Absolutely.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just those guys. Of course, they're willing participants, but I think where it starts is with their PR guy, Derek Boyko, and he, was brought in, I think, to reverse a toxic culture, toxic media relations culture that they had there at One Bills Drive, and uh, they they and the, knew uh, that the they, airport they, hangar
1: and the, yeah, the all interrogation. That stuff,
2: all that stuff. <laughs> and, and, and it's not; it wasn't just me. I yeah. mean, it was pretty much anybody there, with the exception of a couple people. Um, and generally, those couple of people who would not have problems were people who served a purpose. Uh, so, um, yeah, it was it was poisonous. And they made a change. They brought in Derek Boyko, and who was known around the NFL as, as maybe the best PR guy in terms of, uh, uh, well, media relations. is an actu- there's, It's not just a title. It's an actual thing. And, uh, yeah, there was uh, – but then he has to be able to convince Sean McDermott and, and Brandon Bean that this is in your best interest to do. And they could easily say, I'm not doing that. Him having that conversation with Rex Ryan was probably different than a first-year head coach and a first-year general manager. Uh, the thing with Rex Ryan that was really interesting uh, is that he, as you would expect, uh, had a, was raked over the coals pretty good. That's what happens in the New York media. You know, The tabloids, the back page, putting him in clown shoes and the back of, you know, with the red nose and the whole foot fetish video stuff, which we never brought up and all the things that went on there. Uh, with the New York media. He came to Buffalo and he was telling it, it would have been his second combine. So he'd have been there a year and a couple of months. And he was telling anybody who would listen uh, from the New York media, "Man, I miss you guys. These guys in Buffalo, uh, I mean, he he hated us." He and so any Why? type I don't know. I'm not sure what you it was. You guys were easier on him, so to speak. You would think you would think, um, but I don't know what his reasoning was there. But he hated the Buffalo media. Um, and I'm not sure why that was. I, I can imagine that the, it may be there's a uh, former uh, Buffalo PR guy, uh, Scott Birchtold, who is very happy to get in players and coaches and people's ear to say, these are bad people. Don't trust this guy. He's an asshole. I've had more than one. Jim Kelly used to tell me that all the time. He said, I'm not supposed to talk to you. I, you're an asshole. I'd be like, oh, yeah, where'd you hear that? You know, and be like, well, I know where you heard that. <laughs> you know, did stuff like that. So I'm sorry. Dude. And it's not just me. I mean, I, I know that the guys at WM, Mike Shope has had his issues with, I mean, it's, it's a lot of people uh, who just get, who just, would just get cut off at the knees and have zero chance of ever, ever having a relationship uh, with, um, with a member of the media or with a member of the team, because he would he would make sure that he, he sabotaged you. Did a part of Rex just want the show, and he didn't get the show here that he got in New York? Well, I think too, or he thought this was going to be easy, and I think we saw some of that with the way he conducted himself. Uh, you know, taken off. I, I know it was his brother, but did Rex and Rob both go to Cleveland for a World Series game in the week of a? There were there was a game that week, and they're driving to Cleveland to to watch a world series game um i get that they're sports fans and that's a cool thing and the whole thing but you got a football game to get ready for and it was a i want to say it was a wednesday which is supposed to be one of your busier days but anyway i think yeah he thought it was going to be easy i'm going to come to buffalo i'm going to dazzle them uh this small town's not going to know what hit it i'm going to hit all the i'm going to play all the right notes i'm going to get my car all doctored up with the bills paraphernalia. people are going to eat it up and he was right on many regards but then he
1: it just didn't, uh, it wore thin. The intention and the uh, same, you know, the the lockstep that Bean and McDermott seemed to, to walk in, and apparently now with this uh, the, the media relations department now too and all the changes that have come. And it's
2: not just Derek Waco. It's all the people who work there. Yeah. Cole Hendricks, Kevin Kearns, uh, you know, Chris Finelli, all those guys. I mean, they're, uh, uh, Q I know them as. They have a new guy they just added this year. I, I, I'm sorry that I'm not giving him the full credit that's an amazing nickname but they are with them it's it's not it's always why not as opposed to why the question when you come to them with a with a story idea is it's
1: not why would we want to do that it's well yeah why not yeah yeah sure let's do it just as a as a as a guy who's seen a lot of organizations the the way and the I don't know, the continuity that exists between the decision makers right now at One Bill's Drive from a fan's perspective seems like they got their shit in order more than Doug Whaley and Doug Marone did, more than Rex Ryan and Doug Whaley did. You know, is that just us kind of taking what they're telling us or is there is that actually your perception as well? Well, That's our perception.
2: Well, it's my perception. And as far back as as I can go, being in Western New York, everything was clouded. They didn't want you to really know who the decision makers were. Um, I mean, Tom Donahoe, of course, was the decision maker, he was president and general manager, you didn't have any questions there. But then there was a time in the, you know, 2007, 2008, 2009, or who's making this call? (laughs) Is, Is it Russ Brandon's the general manager? Is he making the call? Or Is Dick Geron or is Tom Modrak making the call? And it really didn't change as things, you know, Buddy Nicks. And then all of a sudden, there's this new assistant general manager, this new guy, Doug Whaley, coming in. And and then that one draft, I mean, who, who's, is it Doug Marone? Is it Doug Whaley? Is it, and then there was no owner for a year. And are these guys really do when they make this trade for Sammy Watkins in the draft? I mean, who's, and then who, who signed Terrell Owens? Like, everybody wanted to take credit. And then when it didn't work out, then I didn't do it. I mean, it was you. There was no transparency at all, and at least with this organization, and I think that's where the media relations aspect comes in. We at least have some transparency, or at least we get them to explain how their system works. It's not muddled. It's not. Um, it's not, uh, you know, uh, smoke and mirror type yeah. explanation. They they never were ever forthcoming. I mean, when. I think when Marv Levy was the general manager, I mean, was he really like this is how it's going to be? You know, and I think who was handling the contract? That's the other thing. What role? And it's where fans get upset. Whose role is it on these contracts? Is it Buddy Nix? Is Jim it Doug Over... Whaley? Is it Overdorf. Jim Overdorf? Yeah. I mean, there's I've I've heard since that you know that Jim Overdorf or um, Buddy Nix just wanted to be the the scout and the the guy with the personnel guy. He didn't want to have anything to do with contracts. So is is buddy nicks i mean who's in charge of the salary cap i mean it now we know yeah. now we know all these things everything's in order and it comes from not only the continuity uh, of two guys kind of coming in together and you have to say kinda because they really didn't come in together uh, um, mcdermott had a draft and that's still who who really did that was it wayley <laughs> was it mcdermott but now that everybody's there
1: yeah it's it, i think that the fans at least can are not as confused yeah well that's what i think we perceive as fans we perceive the inconsistent decision making nobody taking ownership it's my it's my decision at the time it's made but when it goes bad it's somebody else's right we perceive that as dysfunction sure it is and we i don't think perceive being in mcdermott as very dysfunctional and the organization as a whole right now. No,
3: we, we perceived it as dysfunction that was clouded by statements like, well, it's a Buffalo Bills decision. Yeah, That's we're, what they always used to say. We're in lockstep. We're in lockstep. I, I hate the fact that we even use that term now, because every time I, I say it- ro- <laughs> Robust. Robust. Robust analytics. Robust analytics. It. Two
2: years later, it doesn't even exist. Robust
1: hmm. lockstep. Yeah. We're, ro- <laughs> we're,
3: we're, we're a step above lockstep at this point. We're in robust lockstep. And it felt shrouded to us. And if you know, the media has the conduits, for the fans we had ways. no we had you no had
2: insight no insight we had no insight we had to take and, and and you did have your sources but you had so many sources who were just trying to save their own ass cover their own ass and uh especially in the transition well it even goes back before the transition there was a period of time for a few years where ralph wilson was an absentee owner because of his health and he remained back in Detroit. He stopped even coming to the home games. And so at One Bill's Drive, in that in that headquarters, you had people who were in charge of their own fiefdoms. You know, like this is my thing and I'm gonna protect it. And then it goes from that to a, tra- a transition of ownership where, uh, you know, then it's like, oh my God, well, what do I gotta do to save my job? You know, <laughs> now I gotta, you know, it, I <laughs> I had more meetings. I had more members uh, of the Buffalo, not that I'm so important as to command audiences with certain people, but right after the Pagulas bought the team, I had more people, more members of the Buffalo Bills front office wanting to meet me off campus for coffee because they wanted to know, all right, well, now how can we fix this relationship? And I'm like, we're not, because I came to you and I would have I came to you on this date and mentioned this to you, and you shrugged your shoulders and said you didn't know anything about it. And then four months later, I came to you about this when you threw me under the bus. And then a couple of months later, I came to you when you totally lied to such and such player about my motives on this, where this, where you did that. It's like, oh, well, uh, I don't know anything about that. Mm. Bullshit, bullshit. And now you need me because there's a new owner coming in. And uh, it
1: was, yeah, it was it, highly dysfunctional. You know, I don't, think, I don't think that fans have... I, I don't know. I like to think of myself as a, a fan who tries to stay in on this stuff. I don't know that fans have a very clear perspective. You can echo me on this or disagree with me. I don't think we had a very clear appreciation of how dysfunctional the organization was on that front. And we still don't know. I mean, these are just anecdotes. Yeah, I mean, sure. I don't
2: know. I mean, I would love for an NFL, like an audit of some kind, you know, where an NFL executive... Or the league would come in and say how are you doing this stuff or spend a month and be like holy smokes you guys this is how you do it
3: i will say it feels like a russ brandon thing because one of the hallmarks of marketing right is that if something goes poorly we want to be able to distribute blame as necessary so the whole it's a buffalo bills decision every time someone asks you who made this call the whole shrouded in mystery all the fives it feels like a russ brandon thing right it feels like you know, it feels like Lord of the Rings all over again, with you know someone chirping in the in the old king's ear.
2: I wouldn't say and. that he uh, uh, that he uh, implemented that mm-hmm. type of thing, but he obviously oversaw it. Yeah, I mean, he had could the have the stopped opportunity it. to fix it. Yeah, he sure. could have stopped it, and uh, and didn't really. And it still continued even after he was the Pagoulas came in, because there's still a lot of those people left over, and we've seen a lot of dismissals uh, over the last couple of years. Um, you know, where I think the Pagulas are are kind of doing their own self-audit. I mean, I always used to say this, and I mentioned it on podcasts, my own radio show a handful of times. I, like, let's go back five years and had the NFL said, all right, Bills, you are going to make every job available. Every job is now up for grabs, and you're going to put out um, uh, help-wanted ads for every position within your uh within your front office, and you're gonna open it up to people around the world. It's not just people you know, or who Ralph was comfortable with, or who Russ was comfortable with, or whatever. How many people who were with the Bills, I always wondered, would, keep, would still have their jobs? Because you'd be opening it up to all these people coming out of college with these sports marketing, or sports management backgrounds, or people from other teams who are looking to take a step up. And it was, I just thought that the percentage would be so low. Of, of people who would, if they just opened every job up to the best candidate, how many people would actually still keep their job? Do you think it's different now? Um, it's a good question. I, I would say yes, uh, because it's it's running a lot better now. It's, uh, I know that there are a lot of fans out there who want the czar job, whether it be for hockey or football. I don't think you need a czar because Brandon Bean is the czar. Jason Botterill is the czar. You don't need another layer in between them and the ownership. And I'm not gonna profess to know as much about the hockey aspect of it. My NHL muscles have atrophied over the years, but I will say that with the Bills front office, the number of people that they have underneath Brandon Bean who have been with other teams or have been wanted by other teams, uh, Malik Boyd, uh, Joe Shane, Dan Morgan, uh, uh, Terrence Gray, uh lake dawson guys who've been in these jobs who've been interviewed for these jobs who uh i mean how far back do you have to go to find a member of the bill's front office who was interviewed for somebody else's opening you probably have to go back to i don't know the super bowl years or john John butler maybe john i mean after that i mean once none of those people were one nobody wanted them yeah Nobody wanted I mean Marv Levy was no general manager commodity I mean was Doug Whaley we don't know I mean but he, we were told that he was he was the next big thing uh, I, I don't know I mean or anybody who worked for him totally out of the league now I mean every uh, you go back to all the, uh, the the number twos and the number threes they're they're not even in the they're not even doing it anymore and so here you have Brandon Bean with this crew of guys who uh, Brian Gain who actually did leave and get a general manager job. Maybe he comes back now that it didn't work out for him in Houston. But, uh, yeah, I mean, these guys are – they're actually getting people that other teams would want.
1: Yeah.
3: One last question I've got for you before I know he wants to ask about the uh, Donald Trump thing. You mentioned the structure about you don't need a czar in between the general manager and the personnel. You don't need pleaser,
2: it, yeah. Right? Um, you could – I mean, hey, if somebody was going to be available, if Scotty Bowman decides he's available and the Sabres want to add Scotty Bowman, yeah, okay. But you don't – There are people out there who think it's mandatory. We have to have it. So with the structures potentially being head coach works
3: for GM who reports to owner or head coach reports to owner and GM reports to owner independently, does that impact the way you do your job, the structure?
2: That's a good question. You know, the funny thing about it is is that the Sabres and the Bills are different. The Bills, uh, the, the head coach and the general manager each individually report to Terry Pagula. And with the Sabres, the coach, or at least I, I, I take that back. I don't know what the current situation is. Maybe I, I, maybe I should know that, and I don't. Um, I don't know if Kruger reports directly, to, and forgive me for not knowing that right off the top of my head, but, uh, but that's not the way it was. And I remember asking Terry Pagoola that one time, and he was like, well, it's just our choice to do it that way. I don't know. I, I wonder if it's, a, if it's a, a vestige of Doug Whaley. You know the fact that Rex Ryan coming in and saying, "Yeah, I'll come in, but I'm not going to answer to this guy." <laughs> you know, it could just be that it could have just been like a holdover. And so Sean McDermott, when keep in mind when he was hired, Doug Lay was still here, so it might just be like, "All right, that's yeah. the way we're going to do it." And we're going to insert Brandon Bean above yes, Sean McDermott exactly. Was so it could, ju- yeah. It's, but in terms of um, effectiveness, I don't know. It could. I, I think it probably does set you up maybe for the. And I guess you inevitably get it with the exception of very few organizations where the, the butting of the heads where the GM and the head coach have a falling out over something, an acquisition or a decision on whether or not to get rid of somebody or yeah, you blew this draft pick and I can't let it go or, uh, or we wanted this guy and you, I told you to get it done, this contract, and you couldn't get it done. And he ends up signing for something similar in, uh, in Kansas City. I mean, it's uh, yeah. I guess it's, so you, if you, if you ever were to get into a soap opera situation, you'd have two different people in the, in the owner's ear, you know, how did, I guess it comes down to how the owner handles it, I guess. We but yeah, that could be setting yourself up. I we, mean, theoretically.
3: We talked last week, we were like, how often do you, you find these people who are in lockstep? And we were talking about it. We came to the conclusion that, well either they are or the second they become not somebody gets fired <laughs> because they they're all tripping in somebody's ear and going well you know hey I've got great systems but this guy's not getting me the players right and then the other one's going well you know hey, listen I'm getting the players
2: he's just not using them right that was Whaley to that was Whaley and Rex Ryan yeah look at all this stuff I'm doing I mean I got you all these players these players are good I mean look what he's not even using them right
1: what do you think of uh I mean, so you get the opportunity to talk to Terry Pagula and ask him about a decision that he made. You know, that's something that most of us don't get the opportunity to do. Do you get any? Um, did you ever get the opportunity to interact with Ralph Wilson on your early on your beat? No, not really. And I think that that was something that
2: the that the PR guy would not have wanted to happen. Yeah. I I I, I talked to Ralph Wilson only a couple of times. Um, one of them being his Hall of Fame induction, where he was open like pack journalism type thing where anybody could talk to them.
1: Yeah. No, I... Uh, no, that was something that wasn't ever going to happen. The... So I won't ask you to compare them, but what's your impression of the Pagulas? Well, the Pagulas aren't exactly like open access. I mean, I am able
2: to get uh, answers from them on occasion and talk to them. and uh, But uh, I'm
1: sorry, your question again is just... What's, just what's your general impression of the Pagoulas? Of them as people? Yeah. And um, is there anything... Goodness. I mean, they've, they, (laughs) Western New York sports fans, I think, feel an appropriate amount of indebtedness and gratefulness for their presence and everything that they've done for us with maintaining our teams and whatnot. Is there anything about them that we maybe, I don't know, wouldn't have guessed is the case, or that's interesting that you don't think that maybe fans are totally aware of off just with what we're all seeing and on, you know, what the team puts out and stuff like that? I don't think so.
2: I will see that, I think that just the general tone I get off of social media is that a lot of fans believe that the Pagoulas are inept, uh, that they aren't doing whatever it takes. They spend the money. I mean, you take a look at this uh, fitness facility that they have out there at One Bill's Drive. It is, and when Cole Beasley says, it blows away what the Dallas Cowboys have. And the Dallas Cowboys spend a lot of money, obviously. They have a lot of money. Um, They do spend the money. I think their heart is in the right place. Uh, They do want to win. But there are a lot of people out there who are considered great sportsmen also who want to win and don't. So I think that there's just a a frustration, especially when it comes to the hockey team of Terry Pagula and Kim Pagula, they don't know what they're doing. Um, Well, if that's the case,
1: then 90% of the owners out there don't know what they're doing. I think that's probably the conclusion that Bruce and I in previous conversations have come to like what is an owner supposed to you know they hire people who are supposed to know more than them a lot of times to make football decisions they don't know necessarily whether or not this person is going to be good at making those decisions or not they they have more information than we do and so if we critique it I mean we don't even know we don't know what the research whenever they were considering hiring Brandon Bean you know revealed or what the hiring process of Sean McDermott revealed to them that influenced their decision And those things could be incredibly enlightening to fans. But we're ready to take to the Twitter pitchforks and, you know, call them dumb or whatever else it may be.
2: And it's not as though Terry and Kim Pagula are meddling. They're not the type of owners that are telling the general manager what to do. And a lot of people maybe go back to um, Billy Lano or uh, what are the... um, You know, the signings back then right after Terry Pagula took over and like he as though he had some influence on some bad contracts with the Sabres early on. But anybody I talk to tells me that they've really they 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 step back. They're involved in terms of you'll see them at the draft. They're in the war room. They're in the uh, at the combine. They're in on the meetings with the players. Terry and Kim are both there. Um, but they're not driving the decision. They're there because they want to be involved as owners and they're curious and they want to learn and they want it, but they're not drive. they're not telling Brandon Bean who to pick. Yeah. They're not in the, the skull sessions that they have on how they're going to place their draft board. They're not involved in to that regard. Um, so I think that that's healthy. They're hiring the people that they think are good enough for the job and they're letting them do it. And so I, I think if you ever hear of Terry Pagula forcing a trade, or something like that, then it's time to worry. But yeah. as of right now, I think you you need to let them, uh, let their hires see what they can do. You wanna give us that Trump story? Sure. <laughs> uh, so I was interviewing him at the time. Uh, G- this is when Jim Kelly was first sick with his cancer. Or the diagnosis was getting out there and Ralph Wilson had just died right around that time. And in the journalism business, I guess this is like a how the sausage gets made type thing is, but when there are people, like Ralph Wilson's obituary was written at the Buffalo News for a long time, 15 years or so. Mark Gaughan's story on the life of Ralph Wilson and we would update it as we need it. And these stories are all written. There's a, the Pope has an obituary ready, The Donald Trump has an obituary. Barack Obama has an obituary. The Associated Press has all these ready to go on all the famous people in the world. In fact, there's a famous story of uh, Joe DiMaggio's being accidentally sent out on the wire uh, and it was coming across the ESPN ticker. Because uh, the AP had actually had gone into Joe DiMaggio's up, uh, obituary to update it, and when closing it out, accidentally hit the wrong button, sent it out on the wire. Um, and so at the time, every, it, was, it was dire for Jim Kelly. And so we were assigned different stories to do uh, at the Buffalo News, and my two stories were about his youth growing up in East Brady, Pennsylvania, and his USFL years. I had two stories to do. And so I always like to, sw- you know, swing for the fences. And like, why, you know, and then if I fall a little
1: short, fine, it'll still be good. So I said, That's why well, you're here with us. We try to do the same thing.
2: You well, <laughs> <we> fell short. <laughs> so, hey, you fell short and came up with something usable. So, uh, So I'm like, if you're going to talk to somebody from the USFL, it's Donald Trump, right? I mean, it's like he's the, and he was of The Apprentice at the time. He hadn't really announced, in fact, he hadn't announced that he was running for for president. So he wasn't the Donald Trump that we know now. And so I reached out through a a contact and um, he got back to me right away. Within about 15 minutes, I had a call from a receptionist. I had Mr. Trump on the line and I talked to him for, uh, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. He repeats himself a lot, and so it, it was not. It was a difficult interview. So it was basically what I came away with. Or is I interviewed. It's going to say Donald Trump said like that was going to be. He didn't say anything profound, really. Um, and then it was either that call or we had another follow up call. But at the end of the call, or no, it would have been the end of this call first call i said uh well you know the the buffalo bills are going to be up for sale i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you if you'd be interested in buying the bills and he said really and i play the audio on occasion on my radio show i still had it and i kept it and we use it and he he starts then all right now who would i call who would i talk to for this and i said well there's jeff Littman who's the cfo and russ brandon's the president he says so then i want to talk to russ brandon And i said eh. It's like he's the president, but the CFO is the one who's really kind of running the estate. He's going to be the main decision maker, and so he's like, okay, okay, well, all right. Now let me get this again, Russ Littman, and he's like, going, <laughs> and I have to explain, and so these are the clips we play on the on the show, and I said, well, so then we get to the end of it, and he's trying to, he's like, well, what do you think the asking price? And he's like pumping me for information, and uh, and then it gets to the end, and. Um, I say, was there a comment maybe I can get about your interest in buying the Buffalo Bills? He says, no, it would be too disrespectful. Ralph Wilson just died. He hasn't even had his funeral yet. You understand, right? I'm like, yeah, sure. And he's like, but we'll, but, uh, we'll talk about it after the funeral. And I think it was the very next day he went on Fox and friends and said, uh, they must have told, he must've told them to ask him about the bills. Because they said something about, we hear about, he said, oh, people are asking me to buy the bills. No, it was me. I had just told him.
0: And now all of a sudden, (laughs) asked him if he was going Uh to
1: buy the
2: bills. Twelve (laughs) hours later, people are telling him, urging him to buy the bills, like telling him that he should buy the bills. And so, yeah, that was was my first, uh, like, and now we see that all the time, right? You know, so-and-so called me. No, I didn't call him. I got a very fine letter from the president of whatever. No, you did. I didn't send that. So, yeah. Nope, that's, that's not true either. Yeah. Nope, that, nope, <laughs> nope. Still yeah. not riding. So that's my Donald Trump story. My two main contacts, though, for Don, to get to Donald Trump were, uh, were Michael Cohen and Hope Hicks. So, I don't think that those. Uh, I don't think yeah, your Cohen
1: I, calls are going to get no, returned. I think
2: you might get cut off. No. Tim. I most recently reached out to him over the Kaepernick uh, kneeling situation, and uh, and Hope Hicks was still with him at the time. And I thought I was going to get him, but it didn't work out. But
1: yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a good get. It's a good quote. Yeah, it's a good get. It'll be a chapter <laughs> in my book. The uh, oh, I'm excited for that. Can you can you take a little bit of mystery away for me, Jim Overdorf, guy who I don't think ever talked to the media. Is that true? No, he doesn't. Um, I mean, maybe he has over the
2: years. I think I've seen some quotes here and there, but
1: what, no, he's doesn't. What was his, uh, what was the people who were in your shoes? What was the opinion of him as far as the decision maker inside the organization? You know, um, we I didn't know. know. Yeah. Really? You guys the same know. as us.
2: No. Yeah. We didn't we were, that was all, and if and things have changed now and I think yeah, yeah. that with the transparency, if I were to have a conversation with somebody, I would be told exactly what his role is and, uh, but yeah, five, seven years ago, I mean, it was, I don't
1: know. Is this guy, how much, how in charge is he? I just remember Whaley at press conferences saying, well, you know, J.O. This, of contracts. JO. Yeah, right, is, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. J.O., yeah, there's a lot of J.O.
2: talk mm-hmm. and, JO, yeah, you're right. And, uh, but we didn't know.
3: Always complimenting the agents and then
2: complimenting J.O. Right. For for getting it
3: Yeah, for doing, getting a good, it doing a
1: great job. You yeah. Know, yeah. Were, were you there too? No,
2: like, I, were you there? I like, <laughs> I like Jim Overdorf. I just have never really, I just don't know the roles. I've. There's a lot of people I like, like Tom Modrak, all that. There's a lot of people within that um, within that team. But then if you were to talk to them about the role, like for instance, back in the Jaron Levy slash Brandon Modrak era. Now, if I'm talking to Tom Modrak, and he was very uh, accessible to me, I talked to him on the phone a lot. But if I'm talking to Tom Modrak and I ask him, so how's what's, how's it work there? I'm getting his side, and of course he's going to put himself in the most favorable blood, favorable light. So I don't necessarily know that what Tom Odrak was telling me was. I don't have a reason to call him a liar, but if it was the unvarnished truth, so I don't even know that. Yeah. You know? So so even the people who I have spoken to over the in that during that era of the Bills,
1: I come away wondering how truthful they were. I, I just remember at one point, this is just my own thought process with whatever I was exposed to. I thought that the three guys who knew, who really knew how things worked inside the building were Russ Brandon, Doug Whaley, and Jim Overdorf. And I think there'd be some others, but yeah. Yeah, those were the guys, those were the names that I knew that, that were talked about, you know, fan-facing, right? right. They, you know, they would talk about Russ and Doug might mention each of the other two's names when talking to, mm-hmm. you know, the media and whatnot. So, all right, Tim. Goodness gracious. I I I don't we think We stayed we'd... here so long that you guys can get some Beef on Wecs to go. Yeah. We cannot thank you enough. I from I'm grateful that you'd have me on. Absolutely one hundred percent. Great to meet you guys. Yeah, this was this was beyond our, and our expectations. And introduce you to Beef on Wec. Yeah.
3: Thank you for being a part of this experience. This is gonna be something that's that's uh that's really cool for yeah, me. Yeah, I'm looking forward
1: to for listening us. to him. Awesome. Thanks,
2: Tim. Pleasure's all mine, guys. Thanks, sir.
1: Well, that's it, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show. I hope that you found that conversation interesting and insightful, because we certainly did, especially the stories about Richie Incognito in the locker room, about the Bill's media relations department over the past several years, about how Tim views journalism and what his responsibility is and how he handles sensitive information and just what his opinion is about how the Bills are being run currently. All of that stuff we thought was incredibly insightful and interesting and stuff that we wanted to get out to you guys, our listeners, as soon as possible. So we hope that you enjoyed this special edition of the Nick and Nolan Show, and I'm going to make one more humble ask of you. We do this podcast and put in the work and the effort and make the trip up here and all that kind of stuff because we love it, of course. But we also do it for you, our listeners. If you like what we're doing, if you think that this was at all of interest to you, if it was something that you found value in, please head over to the iTunes store, give us a review, and give us a couple of sentences of what you think of what Buffalo Rumblings is doing with us in the Nick and Nolan Show. We would love to hear from you, and it really motivates Bruce and I to continue giving you guys good content and try to come up with original interesting things for you guys to listen to if you could do that we would be forever indebted and we hope to hear from you guys soon and as always until next time
0: i do the cha-cha like a sissy girl i like a do the cha-cha